Hello everyone again, this is William Wallace in another episode of Simulating the Enemy. And I think it's time to come back to a topic that I had touched on not that long ago. No, I mean, it's probably been a couple months now, but, um, and that is, you know, Afghanistan. And it's, this isn't because I'm trying to be like super topical or trigger any clicks or anything like that by putting out any episodes that's on fairly relevant and hot topic out there, but enough's happened to talk about um, for an episode, and again, as it's just something that, you know, at the spur of the moment, came up to me, doing some thinking, some thought experiments, and thought, why not an episode? Um, and I don't even really know where to start. I guess I'll start with qualifications on facts. I mean, all we really know, I mean, and, and for anyone, and I say we, anyone who's paying attention to this or reading, um, is from the news, and there's sources and different things, and, like, you get sources from within Taliban and Taliban from the Taliban itself, their spokesmen, different people, you get information from Afghanistan, their armed forces, their government, you get some international organizations who say some certain things. Um, occasionally, the, I mean, the U.S. has actually been pretty quiet in terms of the U.S. government about what's going on, and I mean, I think that's, I think it's obviously why they're, they're not saying too much, because it's really, um, you know, frankly, turning into a shit show over there, and we're probably, I mean, it's looking like, at the most for the most part, it's going to end up being exactly like it was right before September um, 2001, right? So, now what does that mean? Well, I'm not going to, you know, readdress the reasons, the values, the trade-offs of whatever we was that we were doing in Afghanistan. And I also don't like the parallels to Vietnam because there was different scenarios and there were different reasons that we were in Vietnam versus what we were in, Tal in Afghanistan. And there was also different reasons on our limitations. Um, and some of the limitations that we pose on ourselves in Afghanistan have now kind of come back to say, look, they didn't work. Right? And, and what does that mean? And you're kind of seeing it also play out in Iraq. And it's not a new concept. You could actually go back to like Columbus and, you know, when the Europeans first came to the Western Hemisphere. But, you know, this idea was we're going to go in there, we're going to be nice to people, we're going to try to avoid collateral damage and civilian casualties to the max, right? Um, we're going to try to not stir up trouble. We're not going to. We're not going to really conduct all-out war, right? It was really, in some ways, it was a pseudo-law enforcement action carried out by troops, and would that just result in a lot of shootouts, right, and, and actual gun battles, but it wasn't really a ground war. Um, and there's some practical reasons for that, and there's some military reasons for that, but... You know, just like one of the phrases from uh, Vietnam is, you know, they won every battle but lost the war. And, you know, if Taliban ends up taking all of over of Afghanistan again, it's going to kind of been the same thing, right? And that's because we, you know, just to use a sports phrase, you know, you wouldn't step on the throat. They never stepped on the throat of the Taliban, and they didn't do the things necessary to get rid of the Taliban um, because they weren't willing to do them for some reasons. And some of that has to do with our relationship with Pakistan, and, you know, all of this geopolitical stuff gets very complicated. And I personally don't know what kind of favors Pakistan's been doing for us in maybe that part of the world or other parts of the world that is so important for us to maintain that relationship. It's kind of similar to that relationship with Saudi Arabia, right? In that their society and their values 
are just so like opposite of freedom and the opposite of American culture. And yet they're some of our best allies because of what they can do for us and what they have done for us. And I don't know how that fits with Pakistan nearly as much um, as it does with Saudi Arabia, you know, because of the whole Pakistan-India thing. You know, India seems like the country the United States ought to be the best with, right? It's in our interest because India is very populous. Their culture is much, even though it's not, the same as American culture. It's not necessarily Muslim, and therefore those limitations aren't there. Um, you know, Hindu is not necessarily opposite of freedom in a way that Islam is in many ways. Um, and while there may be culture things that are, you know, anti-freedom, they're not any really different than how the United States used to be and India is positioned to be a buffer against both China and Pakistan, which both have cultures that are very opposite to American values or to Western values or just freedom in general. So there's some, there's clearly some things going on there that stopped us from pressuring Pakistan or to doing more operations in Pakistan. Obviously, you know, when we get Osama bin Laden, we didn't care about Pakistan. We just did it, right? Because the political value on our side was so much higher than any kind of damage to um, Pakistan's thing. And so maybe, you know, to speculate, the problem was we were going to risk conflict with Pakistan if we continued to conduct activities in their territory, which would have been required to probably eradicate the Taliban. Basically, Taliban was able to go into Pakistan and just hide there and just wait out uh, the United States, which means the culture didn't get changed. And I talked about this previously, that you don't go in and instill democracy in a culture that doesn't want it. And they don't want it, right? That's, that is not what their culture is about. And, and I'm trying to draw analogies while I'm pausing here. If you think about Christianity in the Western world, how long it took to get to an idea of freedom and liberty and individual rights. Those people who, like the influential writers and the people that were like really promoting those kind of ideas, they weren't fundamental, fundamentalist religious people. They weren't fundamentalist Christians, right? It wasn't the Pope who was out there saying, oh, we need all this you know, we need all this freedom and we need to destroy monarchies and all this stuff, right? No, I mean, the, the Pope and the Catholic Church, they benefited, right, from the power of the monarchies, you know, especially like in France and Italy and Spain, right? England was a little bit always a thorn in their side because the, the, the Pope could never control England in the way that they could the, the continental European monarchs. And that's an important thing to consider, right? And that's why that freedom movement really started, right, in the United Kingdom, because it was free of the control that was exercised by the Catholic Church. And so, um, that's kind of just an inescapable fact of Western civilization development, and why you had that freedom movement in England, then it comes to the United States. You know, and, and maybe in some ways the seeds, you know, were sown in England, and they were planted in the U.S., and they spread back around. But, I mean, the very, you know, the very initial ideas of individual liberty, right to property, things like that, I mean, that generally started um, in, in England and with the way that that feudalism was structured there, and it didn't make it over to the other side of the channel um, all that soon, right? And so most of those monarchies existed um, either until Napoleon did something or World War I did something, and um, even past World War I in some cases. So when you translate that kind of idea to Muslim countries, you know, the logic there, the calculation, the math says, until you have a suitable portion of your society that is 
more devoted to one concept over your religion, you're never going to get there, right? You're not going to get to that level of freedom, and the religion is going to continue to dominate both your culture and, therefore, the government, right? Um, and it's really more about the culture than it is the government, because the government ends up being a reflection of culture, and that's even if you have a democracy, and that's um, the piece that I don't think, you know, there was a phase during this Afghanistan experiment where there was a lot of people talking about the Muslim religion and Islam and how it could be compatible with freedom and, and that, you know, Islam itself was not this anti-freedom religion. It's that these other people were using it um, as a way to keep themselves in power and doing all these things. And I don't really know where that came from and like what their motivation was, but that's just not what history shows us, right? That's just, it's really a naive and weird way to think about it. Um, because, yes, people in charge, kings, warlords, dictators, whatever, they routinely use things like religion in order to put themselves in power. But, you know, as any, you know, education or, or knowledge into ancient history tells you, rulers don't change a culture, right? They usually have to adopt, and you will see this anytime you, I mean, even if you just look at Europe, when, you know, weird things would happen, like one country would invite, you know, some noble from another country to come be their king. That king would come there, but then he would have to do the things that that country wanted him to do. He would basically have to assimilate into that culture. They wouldn't let him be the king anymore. So there's um, the, the idea that somehow Islamic and Muslim culture was just begging for this freedom to do whatever they wanted, and somehow it was just these governments that were stopping them. I mean, that's just not true, and it's definitely not played out that way in places where they've had opportunity, um, right? I mean, Egypt's a really good example. And honestly, I'm not going to do a, a history lesson here on this, but, you know, Egypt tried to get to democracy, right? They had a dictatorship for a long time. They had a president and, like, a military kind of weird thing for a long time. Then they had some elections, and, like, chaos broke out, right? Because what you had is in a place like Egypt, which was not nearly as under control of Islam as some of the other countries in that area, you kind of had a 50-50 split in that country where you had about half the population wanted a secular, non-religious, Western-style government. And then you had, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and all that stuff where they wanted to reinstitute at the very least, you know, kind of what they built in Iraq, which is like an Islamic democracy, whatever the hell that is. Like, and like I mentioned before, those things are incompatible, right? Um, democracy doesn't exist when it is trumped, right, by some other kind of tenet. It'd be like, a, you know, having a democratic dictatorship, right? Like, that's what, that's what China wants to, you know, believe they are, right? Or, um, you know, what the old Soviet Union tried to be, you know? It's, it's, these socialist republics that have elected governments, but that's just not how it worked, right? It doesn't work that way. Um, sure, you can have small amounts of democracy within local communities deciding certain rules, but the overall system is not democratic because it is controlled by something that can't be changed, right? And that's the piece about it, right? So even in a place like the United States, we have a constitution you could democratically change the constitution, which would fundamentally change the way the government operates. When you have a government that's a quote-unquote democracy, but it's still kept underneath this overarching control of the tenets of Islam, there's no democratic way to change the tenets of Islam, right? That's the whole point of the religion, is that it is what it is, and it's rules-based, and so there's no really such thing as a democracy underneath that, right? It's just not a democracy. It's something else. And, and so in Egypt, like, you had violence and you had riots and you had all kinds of crazy stuff going on because you had literally one half of the society says, yep, we want Western sign democracy, we want freedom, we don't want religion controlling our government. And then you had the other half saying, nope, 
we want religion controlling our government. We want, you know, Islam to be a big part of our, to be, you know, the focal point of government and society and culture and all of that. And they still didn't get it figured out, right? Like, I can't even tell you right now what's going on there today because I haven't looked. And, it, I mean, it must not be resulting in violence at this very moment. But um, you can't confuse calm, right, with peace and democratic success. And so fast forward that to Pakistan, to Iran, to Afghanistan. And generally what you have in that whole area is a very primitive and undeveloped culture stuck in many ways in viewpoints, you know, from centuries in the past. Um, and as I talked about before, you don't change culture just by giving it a new government, right? You can change culture if you force a new government onto something as long as you give it enough time. And time is the key thing, right? Because really what has to happen, and it's not necessarily time, time is something that there's what you actually need is death. And and I don't necessarily and I'm not saying you need murder or genocide or anything. You know, there's some pretty good quotes somewhere around, and I don't remember exactly what those quotes are and where they're from, but like the only or the only way or the single way of changing a convicted mind is by killing it. And what that means is when you have someone that is devoted to a cause, to a way of life, to a culture, to a belief system, no amount of conditioning or Viagra or exposure to Western or modern things or money, nothing is going to change the way they think, and they are going to think that way until they're dead. So if they're in a position, right, to continue to influence their culture and to be an authority in that culture, they are working against you until they die. And it's not a new concept, as I maybe have mentioned in the other ones. I don't remember exactly how deep I went into this, but Indian tribes, the quote-unquote barbarian tribes or the Germanic tribes in Europe, they all knew this because what what they would do if they would take over another tribe or whatever, they would literally kill all the older men and many times the male children, um, because that's how you arrive, that's how you change a culture. Um, and a lot of times, really, it is the men that drive the culture for some reason. Now, that may be an effect of the culture itself, the fact that it's the men that's driving it, but that is what they did. And the reason that works is because culture is generational. That's why you have what... We have the so-called culture war, or the culture wars going on in the U.S., and it's not that simple in the U.S., and it's generational, because you have people aligning themselves with various viewpoints at all age levels in this country, and so the U.S. is not a good example of this macro, in a macro way, but in a micro way, you can see, like, you know, kids growing up today... Right, they have the internet. They've always had the internet. They've never been without the internet. Um, they've always had cell phones. Like their entire culture is, has been, their entire existence has been defined by the internet and always having a mobile device on you. They're the first generation, right? Everyone else um, that's older than that generation, most of them still remember growing up. Without that, without a cell phone, without the internet, right? You, you had you know Saturday morning cartoons, um, and NFL Sunday, and you know TV shows in the evening during the week, and that was kind of the staple, right, of the era before the internet. And you know, and you had you know gaming consoles, right? Those things came around in their infancy before the internet did. And, um, you know, VCRs, right? And then you had CDs and all these kind of things. And um, so the point is that whatever we were trying to do in Afghanistan was always going to fail because we were never going to change the culture. And we didn't change the culture because, quite frankly, we didn't kill enough people. Um, And that's fine. That's a choice you can make, right? It might be the humane choice. It's definitely the choice that... um, 
the Geneva Convention and the United Nations and all that stuff is aimed to produce, right? You don't want to just be killing everybody for no reason. And, you know, you would have to say it's, it's a weird distinction to draw that you want to kill all these people in order to destroy their government and force them to change their government, and that's okay. But you don't want to kill all these people in order to force them to change their culture, and then that's considered genocide or something, right? So that's a very... It's kind of an artificial distinction because, as I said, that culture is what creates that government. So if you want to, if it's okay to kill people to change government, then logic almost demands that it's also okay to kill people to change their culture. Um, but when you say kill people, right, we're talking about combatants most of the time. But the Taliban was never declared, right, to be combatants. Um, I mean, maybe they were in certain situations. Generally, things like the Taliban and terrorist organizations are not deemed to be lawful combatants under the rules of the law of war or the law of armed conflict or those kind of things. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into it, but um, I'm actually kind of thinking now that they never were. And so they were never lawful combatants anyway, so anytime we killed them, it was under some other kind of legal justification. So we're already drawing these kind of subtle distinctions in these gray areas to even, you know, what they call a non-international armed conflict is what this kind of thing is, and therefore it doesn't necessarily fall under the Geneva Convention, Convention rules. You know, and it's really just kind of be, it's kind of all bullshit, to be honest with you, because the distinctions that they drew just don't make any sense, right? And so what you really have to understand is that the Geneva Convention was designed to protect the United States fighting Russia, or the United States fighting France, or France fighting Russia, whatever state action, because it was nations, right, who created the Geneva Convention. It was nations that have a right to sit at the United Nations, and it was never designed for these weird regional conflicts, either within a country or, you know, something like an, an outside country and some sort of foe inside of another country that's not actually the government of that country. And so that's where it gets kind of stupid, um, because, right, the Taliban kind of was the nation of Afghanistan, but because someone decided that they weren't, then it doesn't trigger all these other laws. So in some ways, all that stuff just becomes bullshit anyway, and it's really flimsy. To on one hand, you know, do these cartwheels of gymnastics with language to try to make something legal, but then not just go ahead and make the whole thing legal in a way to just fix it, right? Um, and that's not what happened, right? We didn't go into Pakistan and just eradicate the Taliban like you would. And, we'll, and let's be honest, Wars haven't really been able to be seriously won since the Geneva Convention, right? I mean, think about all the conflicts that have happened post-World War II. Nobody wins. What you end up having is a few skirmishes, a few battles, and then it just kind of stops, right? There hasn't been any surrenders. At least not that I can think of. I mean, obviously, we've had surrenders in terms of soldiers in the battlefield will surrender. But there hasn't been, like, you know, formal surrenders in the deck of an aircraft carrier where one nation is saying, you know, we surrender to you, don't destroy us, we'll do whatever you want. Um, and maybe they should. I mean, if you look at Japan, Japan is, like, the weirdest model in geopolitical history, really, in that they attack us out of the blue, they fight us to the death, you know, we'd rather to kill themselves than to lose. We drop the most powerful bombs in the history, or at least in recorded human history, on their nation, which is a small island to begin with. We completely humble them, we annihilate them, we burn some of their cities to the ground, we humble and embarrass their emperor, we put them on an aircraft carrier, basically force them to sign their life away to the United States. And here we are, 70 years later, whatever it is, they are one of the most modern, most successful societies and democracies on the planet. 
the places where the nuclear bombs were dropped are like thriving metropolises, and there are and they're some of our best friends in terms of of international allies, right? And so, um, if we would have taken the approach to Afghanistan that we took with Japan in World War II, you can make a pretty good argument that things would be a lot different today. Probably better. Are we here to say that Japan is better off today than they were in 1950? Maybe not, right? There was a painful period following World War II for Japan, right? I mean, you had the radiation from the bombs, you had all the devastation destruction from firebombing, you had obviously lots of, of death in terms of soldiers and things like that, and so being the losers of a war, you know, it was tough. Civilians, military people alike, it was a rough time. But in the long view, it would kind of be hard for a Japanese citizen today to say that it wasn't in their best interest for the United States to do what we did, which was basically crush their society into nothing and then let them rebuild it under the rules that we gave them for rebuilding their society and help them do it. And obviously, when you help somebody build, rebuild their society, you get to control a little bit how it happens. Now, that's not to say there aren't people in Japan who don't like the U.S. and that they don't want our military there anymore, right? I mean, every democracy is going to generate those groups of free expression, and that's kind of the beauty of democracy, right? There are other countries where we're there. I mean, you could imagine some place like maybe the UAE or Jordan. You've got to imagine that there's groups that are not happy with the United States being there, but because of the way those countries are structured, those people don't really get much of a voice, and you definitely don't care about them. And the United States definitely doesn't care what they think. In the same way that we care about the free citizens of Japan and what they think, because they're part of the democracy, right? And so they have input into their government, which gives the United States an incentive to try to please as many of them as we can, because, you know, we want to be friends with them. You know, all that to say, you know, should we drop nuclear bombs in Afghanistan? No, we shouldn't have, because it wouldn't have done any good. Mainly because things were so spread out. Now, having been said, having said that, maybe there would have been a lot less collateral damage, and you could have really just literally annihilated an entire culture of the Taliban with a few nuclear weapons. Maybe. You know. I don't. I looked at the geography to see if that was even an option in terms of practicality. Not that we would have been willing to do it. But a lot of innocent people would have died, right? Women and children would have died. And that was acceptable to us in World War II. And it led to, you know, a blooming of the survivors in Japan, you know, half a century later. And that's the kind, you know, and their culture is completely different. There are still remnants of that old culture. Um, but from a government standpoint, the, like, the culture is completely different, and therefore the government is completely different. And that's an example of literally burning a society to the ground. Now, they didn't have to kill everybody, right? But we killed a lot of people. Um, and we killed enough people to bring them to their knees. And, of course, right, they're an island. They couldn't go anywhere. They were, land I mean, they're, it's not like they're going to evacuate their whole society where the Taliban had the opportunity to flee into Pakistan. And so, you know, that brings us back to, regardless of, of what kind of military operation we might have been willing to, to do or capable of doing in Afghanistan to eradicate the Taliban, um, unless we were willing to go into Pakistan and finish the job, it was always going to be incomplete. Japan didn't have that option. Germany didn't have that option, right? They were boxed in. They didn't have anywhere to go. And so they got trapped and they got burned to the ground. And now those societies are democracies and they're, they're thriving. They're prosperous, right? They have things that Afghanistan can't even dream of having. You know, and so if you look at this dispassionately from a big picture, right, and what, you know, what would a computer do if you gave the computer the option? It would freaking nuke Afghanistan. That's what a computer would do. I mean, a computer would look at the history of warfare and then the results of what happens when a country is, is loses and they lose to a particular country. Like, so a computer would say, uh, United States, you should have just gone in there and killed everybody um, and literally wiped these people off the map. And and then you could have controlled the rebuild all the way up because you would have controlled the culture. Now, people have been saying for, you know, hundreds of years that you can't control Afghanistan. And 
And maybe that's true. You know, I don't necessarily believe that to be true because Afghanistan is not any different of a geography than the United States of America. Now, I will grant you, I don't believe any army could take over the United States. Not even all that military. They just couldn't do it. Right? I mean, you got mountains, you got plateaus, you got rivers, you got plains, you got indefensible positions. You could not hold the massive amount of territory in the United States. Couldn't do it. I mean, we couldn't do it against the Indians when, you know, the Indian Wars. Indians couldn't do it against us either. Um, Spanish could never do it. It's just too much space and there's too much, right? Europe is small. That's why land wars in Europe made sense. Um, because continental Europe is extraordinarily small. It's like half the size of the United States. And they're all boxed in by an ocean on one side. And then you have a mountain range. And eventually, I mean, if you could even get into Eastern Europe a little bit, there's, there's oceans on the other side, right? And that's not that big of an area. But, you know, with the mountains really cutting in half, and if you compare that to the United States, right, you could do it on the eastern seaboard, right, because you have a mountain range that can box in anything to the east, so you would have that option. You could do it in California, um, right, and you might be able to do it in between the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevadas. There might be a couple places, but in between the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains, you're not holding that. Right? That is just too much of an expansive area, and it's not going to happen. Even Russia. I mean, Russia is huge. But when it comes to war, um, she don't really care about holding Siberia, right? Like, there's nothing up there. And so most of Russia is close enough to the rest of Europe that they also don't get the benefit of that giant expanse. Now, obviously, there are some Russian cities that are further out into the boonies. Or further out towards Asia, and you know those Asian Russian cities, you're not going to capture them, right? I mean, the only person that ever take those over was like the Mongols, maybe the Huns, right? But they were coming from Asia and coming this way, um, you know. But that was not that wasn't in modern times, right? That was basically armies that rolled in to individual villages, and they weren't nations at that time, right? They were just little villages. They didn't have a national defense structure. All that is to say, um. Japan's not the greatest example because they were boxed in. Either was Germany, and you would have had to find a way to box in the Taliban, which meant you would have had to deal with Pakistan. Now, if you could have done it, you could have done it, right? And I'm, I'm here to tell you that technological, technology-wise, we could have annihilated the entire Taliban culture. It might have taken 10 years. It might have taken us a trillion dollars where we could have done it. Um, and that's kind of the point, too, right? There was also an economic cost there and also a political cost, cost in American lives, um, as well as, you know, bigger picture issues. So, and, and that's kind of where I'm going here. We allowed ourselves to lose in, a, in, in Vietnam for a certain amount of reasons, right? I mean, we had rules of engagement in Vietnam that. Basically, we chose to lose, and we chose to leave. Um, same thing happened in Afghanistan, right? We had a rules-based regime that we weren't willing to do certain things that wouldn't need to be done, and we did those for a reason. And because, and those reasons generally are, we don't want the world to devolve into a cutthroat, scorched earth battlefield. And so, people, a lot of other countries take their cue from the United States. So, if we go into some place and start doing something, killing innocent people, eliminating a culture by killing all the men's, it is only a matter of weeks before some of these other governments around the world start doing it in their own countries and for completely different reasons. You know, and so what we do is we stand on these principles and say, yeah, we know we can do that to win, but we're not going to. Because the consequences of doing it and what it would lead to happening in the world is worse than us losing or leaving in Afghanistan. You know, and I feel like a lot of that is getting lost in the reporting and the whole nature of Afghanistan, right? Now, we can critique all day long how we've gone about these nation-building things, and I think we finally learned our lesson on this. 
you know, you know, all those assholes in Iraq and their government, they wouldn't even have a job. They wouldn't even have a position in their government if it wasn't for us. Yet they're doing all these votes to, you know, kick us out and condemn us for different things. Like, asshole, you would be freaking working in a damn gas station with Saddam Hussein still in power if it wasn't for us. And now you're going to be in the democracy that we gifted you, kicking us out of your own damn country, right? And that's what I'm talking about. You know, these people turn on you the moment they no longer need you. And I made a reference to Columbus and I made a reference to um, Europeans and Native Americans. Because that's what happened. And, you know, Europeans came over, and there was already these nations of Native Americans in both North and South America. And what they did is, is one or two groups would try to get all buddy-buddy and be friends with the Europeans because they thought that they could use that leverage against their rivals in their home country um, to get more power. And that's what they tried to do. And then, you know, it backfired on them, right? And then there was disease and all these kind of things. And just lots of them, most of them died. Um, right? But there was an arrogance. There was an arrogance among Native Americans, um, and you can go read about this. There's very interesting stories about, you know, some Indians that actually traveled to Europe and then came back to tell their tribes, uh, guys, you guys are handling this the wrong way. Like, there are so many of them over in Europe that our strategy that we've been doing is going to fail. So you had Indians come back from Europe and tell their people this. And it's because they're their people, the Native Americans, were acting arrogant, and they were, you know, trying to use, basically, the Europeans against their, their Indian political rivals, playing both sides against the middle sometimes, and it completely backfired on them because they didn't, they didn't appreciate uh, the risks that they were taking um, and things like that. So, again, I don't, I don't want to get into a big, long expose on that because that's a whole other topic that maybe I'll touch on someday because... That's not the kind of stuff that really gets taught um, in American education. The real story about Europeans coming here, I think you either get two versions. You get like this watered down, who Columbus is a hero, whatever. Indians were stupid, primitive people. And then you have another story, which is, oh my God, Europeans really came over here and they just slaughtered all these people, right? And, and the truth is definitely right smack dab in the middle of all that. But no one really teaches it in a truthful, reasonable way. It's usually just way one side to the other or another, but that's for another day. And anyway, the, the point is, is that these people in these cultures, you don't change them. You come, they will pretend to be your friends. They will tell you what you want to hear. They will pretend to show you what you want to see so they can use you to get what they want. And then with the idea that the moment you're gone, they're just going to go back to doing what they do. Right? And that goes back to that idea that you're not changing people or the only thing that changes people is when they die. Right? That's the only way you eliminate that. There's no, there's no change in culture. You know, that's why you know, you've heard about you know, the, battle or the battle for the minds of the children. Right? That's conditioning. That's how you change culture. It's the children. It's not the people that are already alive. And so the only way that you change a culture is by waiting for those people who, the old people who are already alive, to die. They get replaced by children who have been conditioned to think differently. Or, you kill the old people. And those are the only two ways. Those are only the two ways. Like, I can't even, I'm sitting here right now, trying to imagine as much of human history as that I can. And I cannot think of one example where a nation just said, hey, you know what? Let's all just change our culture and be something different. Like not, like, not once. I mean, even the closest thing I can really even think of is actually maybe when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia's, and Russians, you know, they went from being under the communists to being something else, kind of a little bit overnight. But that's not really a good analogy, and it's not exactly accurate, because one, Russian culture was already shifting away from communism long before it collapsed. I mean, you had black markets, I mean, American goods were like gold over there. They were never... Russian culture was never fully communized, I guess, right? Because there was a big portion of the population opposed the revolution, right? They were 
They were they loved the royal the royal family, the imperial family, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, and a lot of those same people and some of the same families that had the same beliefs, they were thrilled when they got rid of communism and went back to the Russian Federation. And so, but at the same time, you still have a bunch of lazy fucks over there who still wish there was communism, so you get a bunch of free stuff from not working. But anyway, outside of that very limited and barely applicable example, I can't think of another example where a culture was like, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and be different now. It doesn't work that way. Even in the freest of free countries, from a cultural standpoint, the United States, that doesn't happen. And I say that because the United States is definitely the most freest country from a culture standpoint, and here's why. We don't have a culture. Now, that's not to say anything bad about the United States. What that means is the people who created this country all came from a bunch of really weird different backgrounds. Not weird, just different backgrounds. And when that happens, there was no culture that was imported, right? We don't have 300 years in any one location in this country of doing the same thing. The closest we have is Native American culture, which exists in some of the reservations. Um, you know, but because of what, because of the changes that happened in the whole United States over that history, even that culture is a little bit different. Like, you think, a lot of people think about Native American culture and they think about Indians on horseback, right? That's not it. Horses weren't here until the Europeans got here. So any pre-European, you know, a pre-Columbian Native American culture did not include horses. Um, and so, you know, even the Native Americans' cultures didn't survive, right? They evolved, they changed on the ground. Um, and so there's really not an American culture that stretches back more than really probably, you know, the early 1800s. Um, and every place in the U.S. is kind of a blend of an overall kind of American Americanization with little pockets of culture from different places, right? I mean, there's some towns in different places. Maybe you have a town that's got a big Czechoslovakian population because they had a, a big group of them immigrated there, you know, a few hundred years ago, or maybe even only 150 years ago. Maybe right after the Civil War or something, or maybe you have a Swedish town. Or maybe, you know, I mean, every 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 major city seems to have, like, Chinatown, right? Um, you have areas with a lot of, you know, the Indian subcontinent um, people who immigrated from there. And, you know, obviously you have, you know, urban and black culture concentrated on different things, and for different reasons, right? And then you have, like, the South, you have the Northeast. And so there's not really an American culture, right? We have a number of you know, stylistic subcultures. Um, and again, that's not to say that we don't have cultures as American in terms of, like, things that we do. But when you compare it to, like, cultures in other countries, they just have been there doing certain things for hundreds of years. You know, non-British English isn't that old, right? Um you got to realize that almost everyone, probably up until, I don't know, maybe 1820 or so, probably was speaking with a British accent. And it was only, I mean, that's why you still have, you know, a lot of weird accents in the Northeast, right? They never left. Um, those accents are still there. And most of the people, right, that were even in the U.S. at that point, had not had, had come or come from a family that had just come from the British Isles not that long ago. And then they spread out across the country, right? And eventually those accents went away. I would actually, now that we're talking about it, I'd be curious to read about things like a um like a Texas accent. Like a southern accent. That seems to be not that dissimilar from a derivative of a British accent. When you think about how British people talk, and then a Southern drawl. It's not the same, but it's not necessarily dissimilar either. Same thing with, like, the Southern drawl versus how a Massachusetts accent might be. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing to, to wonder if anyone's ever done research on that. But anyway, you know, I'll wrap this up. This has been going on for a while, uh, this conversation. 
But anyway, the point is, right, you know, I didn't really get to it, is that Afghanistan is basically falling to the Taliban again. And all of this work and all of this money that we poured into this government for 20-some years is about to just be wiped off the earth like it's a whiteboard. And the point is that this is absolute evidence that proves what I said in the previous ones, that you don't just change culture by showing up and give people money, right? You show up and give people money, they're going to tell you what you want to hear and do what they want, do what they think you want them to do, so you keep giving them money. And then when you leave, they just go back to doing what they were doing before. And, you know, whatever the reason is, the Afghan National Army and Air Force, maybe they're not fighting, maybe they're not trained well, maybe they're, I mean, it's really hard to know exactly what their problem is because we, we all know that they were devoted to winning against the Taliban that they would they would put up a, a hell of a fight. Right? Because in any war, in any in any era in history, when you have an what would what would be considered an invader in the Taliban coming in to take over their cities, people fight to the death to nail. Tooth and nail. And that's not what's going on in Afghanistan. Like they are not fighting to the death. They're not fighting tooth and nail. And that tells you that the culture hasn't changed because the people there don't consider themselves to be Afghanistanians or whatever they are, Afghans, right? They probably their loyalties are probably to whatever tribe they're in or their sect of Islam or family group or regional group or whatever. And it's definitely not to the national government. It's definitely not to the cities that they're in. Because they're just walking away in a lot of cases. And so, you know, some of that is a factor of time, right? It takes time to change that culture, like I said. And what you and that what needs to change is those loyalties for those troops. And clearly it hasn't. Right. And so um I think it's very likely that unless we do something fairly drastic that the entirety of Afghanistan may actually fall back um, into the hands of the Taliban. And so, you know, the only places right now, at least according to what I've read, that is resisting Taliban rule are some, like, local warlords who have taken upon themselves to figure out how to resist it, right? Because, right, what I just said, those local warlords in those cities, that's where their loyalty is. That's where their devotion is. They're fighting tooth and nail to keep the Taliban out, because that's what they believe in. The rest of the Afghan national military is not doing that, because they don't have that conviction, because their loyalties are somewhere else. And that's really what culture is ultimately about. Like, what are you loyal to? Is it a religion? Is it a way of life? Is it a location? Um, is it an economic system? Like, what is it? Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting, you know, I think we all kind of knew it was going to be bad. I don't know if anyone predicted this rapid of it being bad, but it also didn't help, you know, politically in the United States, just announcing to the world, hey, we're just going to go ahead and leave, you know, six months from now we're going to be gone, so go ahead and prepare, you know, your campaign to take back over this country for this date, because we're telling you well in advance what we're doing. I mean, that that whole thing was, like, announcing all of that thing was purely political, right, which is a mistake anytime you're making military statements for political reasons. Um, that's 100% a negative. There's literally no positive trade-off for that from a military standpoint. And so at that point, the Taliban, all they need to do, well, let's just stockpile our weapons. Let's get trained up. Let's rest. Everyone, you know, take a vacation for the next three weeks. So as soon as they leave, we're going to hit this thing running. And we're going to freaking blitzkrieg this whole country and take it back for ourselves. All because we told them exactly what we were doing. If we just started pulling people out quietly and... Without any, without talking about our plan or doing anything like, they wouldn't have necessarily known. Like, I mean, they may have put it together, but they wouldn't have known it was such a conviction to risk, you know, some of the things that they're doing now. And so, you know, that was just, it was a missed opportunity. Now, would it have changed anything in the long run? Maybe not. Because eventually they would have known that we're gone and they could have kicked it in the gear. But maybe, just maybe. It would have bought the Afghan military some time to get their feet under them on their own. It was basically pulled the rug out, told them to stand on their own, 
after having given the Taliban like a six month running head start. And so that's uh, just unfortunate. And hopefully there's going to be a lesson learned there. Um, but again, you know, political things, just like in Vietnam, it's like here, you just can't rely on our presidents generally to do the right thing when it comes to these foreign wars. You just really can't. I mean, even, even, and I don't want to, you know, I want to, I want to end this, this very episode here real shortly, but, you know, I'd say, even if you go back and read some of the things about Roosevelt and Harry Truman at the end of World War II, it just really saddens you to just know how much political bullshit was involved in a lot of the decisions that were made at the end of World War II about real, like, fucking re-election campaigns, right? I mean, you're talking about a world war. You're talking about an extermination of millions of people, and you still have two presidents, you know, back-to-back, who are still having conversations with people about what's the most politically feasible thing to do to make sure I get re-elected, as opposed to doing the right thing, right, at the end of World War II, right? And that's the weakness of democracy. Um, And it's quite clear that, you know, that is always going to be a weakness, and it's never going to go away. But it's just really sad um, to see, you know, maybe, you know, this will lead to, well, no, it won't. But the hope would be that seeing it again will maybe lead to some education among Americans to understand that we can't trust our administrations, the government, to get us into things because they're going to pull it out only when it's in political interest. And the end, and the end result is never going to matter. And so, you know, thanks for listening. This was a little longer than I intended it to be. But a lot of these things are kind of coming together. And I just had a, a few episodes that I've just had to, had to get on and create because things were happening in the world that were kind of either validating or, you know, giving us a way to test some of the hypotheses that we had proposed in some of the other episodes. And so... You know, thanks everyone for listening, and I'll see you soon.